My guest today is Stan Voiger. He's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he specializes in political economy and public finance. He is here today to discuss his latest article titled Modern Monetary Theory and Policy. Stan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Modern monetary theory is an economic idea that's sort of been bubbling around for a while on Twitter. I mean, that's right where, where I saw it, but it's sort of now entered sort of the political landscape. There are uh, politicians talking about it uh, to with greater or lesser specificity. I mean, they may not call it MMT, modern monetary theory, but they seem to like the idea. What is the idea? What it, what what is it, and what isn't it? Well. So this is good. I'm going to hedge a little bit because what it is depends a lot on who you ask. So it's not just well, what, what is its central claim? The central claim is that if you have borrowed money in your uh, in your domestic currency, in your own currency, the currency that you as the government create, right. then you can always pay back uh, those claims. All right. Uh, right That's what we do in the United States. Uh, yeah. So the idea is you can always create your domestic – so the U.S. government can create more dollars and then it can use those dollars to pay – uh, it's debt. That's the central idea. Right. That does not sound very interesting. That uh, sounds like something that I mean. Is that that's not a controversial statement? No, because the money you owe, the debt you owe is in the domestic currency, and you can you can always print the domestic. All right. Currency. So why are folks on the left, and I have Democratic politicians? What what? Why are they talking about this theory if that's the central claim? Because the uh, there's a few uh, a few economists and other people who have turned this relatively uncontroversial. Uh, claim uh, into a broader political agenda. And so what they say is because you can always uh, live up to the financial obligations you've incurred in your own domestic currency, that means that there are no real borrowing constraints you have to take into account. That's, I think, a fair representation. Now, some of the people who associate with this movement uh, we'll push back when you say, no, no, we do believe in, you know, resource constraints and things like that, but only when they receive pushback. They typically do frame the idea as allowing for extrapolation from we can pay back what we owe in our own currency to we can take on significant additional spending programs without running into any kind of macroeconomic constraint. Now, w- one thing to keep in mind is that Part of why this theory, if you want to call it that, is is poorly defined is that it's never really spelled out. There are no, you know, there are very few sort of explicit academic style articles on the topic. Uh There are no real, you know, articles in in serious academic journals. Uh, You know, there's a book titled Modern Monetary Theory that's by one of the proponents, someone who's at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, but, you know, that book contains some content that other people who on Twitter would, would identify as MMT proponents would not necessarily accept. And so I think it's hard to move in specific terms beyond, one, that undisputed idea that you can pay off debt owed in your local currency, and two, that a lot of the proponents of the theory as a broader thing would like to see more, would like to see more public spending and are not worried about paying for it. Well, do you have a sense of sort of the path this idea has taken that now you have politicians like Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez talking about it. I see other people, they, again, they may not use the phrase, but they seem to have heard the idea uh, that there's a way that we can get our spending agenda through without having to raise taxes any, certainly anytime soon. So we're, sort of how did this emerge? Yeah, so I think it, it moved from a couple of heterodox economics departments to the policy sphere 
in, a, in a couple of ways, right? So there's some blogging, uh, certainly since the the fiscal policy changes induced by the Great Recession. recession. And one of the leading PhD economists who, who is a proponent of MMT um, has, has long been a, a, a Democratic political, political operative. So Stephanie Kelton uh, worked for the Senate Budget Committee. Then she was uh, chief economist, uh, I think, on Bernie Sanders' presidential mm-hmm. campaign. So she, I think, is really an important link between the, the few academic economists who, who, who think that these ideas are important and the, the policy dialogue. And then for some reason, it's very popular on Twitter. Well, sir, it, this this may be one of Twitter's great uh, potential policy victories yeah. is is uh, expounding this idea. If there's one thing we know about Twitter is that the politics, the politicians, and policies uh, popular on Twitter and spawned by Twitter make things better. <laughs> there, there is no sounder source <laughs> of policy information. But was, but was this idea was it sort of out there ten, twenty years ago, but no one paid attention to it then because of the Great Recession? And there's a huge debt, and there's a lot of questioning of traditional economics since then. It gave that idea space to emerge, or or is there something newer about it? No, well, so the actually the 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 MMTers, the movement, claims much older uh, intellectual origins, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, origins that go back to before the uh, the the neoclassical. Uh, the new classical economists and the new Keynesian economists. So they go back to the 50s and the 60s when people still believed in an unmovable Phillips curve. Those mm-hmm. kind of neo-Keynesian uh, economists are ones they often refer back to. Um, so it's it's you know the, at least the lineage they claim is goes back pretty far. The uptick in popularity, I think, is certainly uh, related to the fiscal austerity policies we've seen since the Great Recession. Um, you know, some I think some of the pushback against uh, calls for tighter fiscal policy and certainly tighter monetary policy right. uh, since the Great Recession, I think, has been justified. I, I don't think that the jumps they're making are particularly useful. Right? So the, there's been obviously there's been pushback from mainstream monetary doves too, and people who think you know, for example, even now people think that the Federal Reserve shouldn't be tightening. There were people in 2010 who thought that European countries or in the U.S. should uh, run larger fiscal deficits. I mean, that's fine. Right? The, that's a position a lot of people held. Uh, none of that has to has much to do with what the MMT people uh, specifically claim or adduce as 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 arguments for those policy stances. Right. So, um, so you so you've sort of had this environment where people were sort of unsatisfied with the answers and policies they were being given, about worrying about debt, uh, worried that uh, the big deficits were going to cause high inflation. You, you heard that worry. And so there's sort of been a, a pushback, which, which has now resulted in sort of a, a different way of looking at those issues. But again, what I'm trying to get at is, what, what's, what's, is it really just the framing device that's new? And this is another way to sort of justify um, looser monetary policy or more spending, or or is there a new kind of economics you were talking about? It really goes back to the fifties, and it's uh, you know you know Keynesian. Is that really all it is? Is uh, there are some tr- no? So that's, so economics that's or, the lineage the yeah. the MMT yeah, proponents right. claim. I think there's less to it than that. Right. So if you look at the so the, the book I mentioned earlier by L. Randall Ray, who's mm-hmm. at the University of Missouri, his book is you know eighty percent of the book is 
uh, account balances. So it shows, you know, the money goes from the central bank to treasury. To how money is about how money is created. Yeah, and then there's some, you know, there are assets in the private sector, there's assets abroad, and there's assets, and, you know, it's a lot of, you know, we move things around on balance sheets. Right. The ultimate, the only really substantive economic point there is, again, that, yeah, you know, that governments can pay off debt they owe in their, in their, in their, in the currency they can create. Um, and so, you know, it, it feels like there is a lot of, you know, thinking going on, right. but in terms of economic substance, it's very little. Do you think the, the, the proponents felt the need to sort of drive that point home since after the Great Recession, you heard a lot of concern uh, that the U.S. was going to go bankrupt, uh, that it couldn't borrow, you know, you know credit markets were going to shut down because of our, these, these huge trillion-dollar deficits. And is so, so is that so? Is what we're seeing kind of like an overkill? Is just you think just kind of remind people yeah, maybe. that so, this that the, hey, that's not what economics says, and here's why. Yeah, so I think that would be a that would be a generous interpretation, but I think that's true, right? So there probably I don't know. There probably are people who believe that you can't just create money to pay off your domestic currency denominated public debt. I I don't really understand why you wouldn't be able to. I mean, I don't really see the counter argument to that very narrow point. But yeah, when, yeah, what you're saying right now, when you're saying, well, th- you know, this is this is sort of basic economics, um, that if you well, it's uh, accounting th- th- more in right, th- but if you're printing money, if you have debt in your own currency, because y- you can print money. Yeah, but but, they're, they're but that concession, to- but that concession you're making, I think MNTers view that as a concession, that you're conceding their point, and therefore, I think it would be a concession if I said that there were no potential downsides to that. Right. And there are many potential uh, uh, downsides to that. So uh, let's talk about okay, two. What, yeah, okay. So the first one, and this is, I think, particularly important for the for the U.S. context, is that if you create enough new money, at some point you'll in, inflation will go up. Right. That was a big issue in the 70s, and it is precisely why uh, much of modern economics kind of ditched the intellectual predecessors of, of the MMT movement, right, because we ran into stagflation. Uh, you know, those th- those problems. The second point I would make is that policymakers are aware of the fact that they can just, you know, create more money and pay off their domestic currency denominated public debt. But in some situations, they don't do that precisely because there are downsides to it. So there's there's work by uh, uh, Wenchin Du, who's at the Federal Reserve Board, Jesse Schrager, who's at Columbia, where they, they simply show that uh, if you look even at domestic uh, currency denominated sovereign debt, uh, markets price in a default risk. And we've seen situations in the past where uh, countries have chosen to default on their, on their domestic uh, currency-denominated public debt. For example, in Russia in 98, in uh, Mexico, defaulted on the Teso Bonos. Um, and there are good reasons for that. One clear one is that if you, if you created a lot more new domestic currency, your exchange rate may depreciate. Now, if there are domestic firms who have a lot of foreign currency-denominated debt in their balance sheets uh, are confronted with this depreciating uh, exchange rate, then they will not be able to pay uh, to, to, to live up to those foreign currency-denominated debt obligations. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so there are real downsides to, to just, you know, crank R- up, the, running the crank up the printing presses. Uh, and, you know, so... As not, if you don't acknowledge that, then your you know your theory do, is incomplete, and I don't. Do you, you know. And do you feel that's not being acknowledged? Well, it's certainly not something they're open about, which is remarkable for something that refers to itself as a monetary theory, right? You'd right. think there'd be a theory uh, 
of the price level, which is you know something that monetary economics is 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 often very concerned with. Right. And so they what they try to they they what they try to do is they try to avoid talking about how they would deal with problems like that, because and you know sometimes they're pushed on it and they will say yeah sure then we'll just raise taxes and that's how you as they say remove the money from the economy yes. again. But at the same time they you know they try they they try to be a bit slippery about that and say no no actually. Uh, that's not what we're going to do. Are, are they saying something different uh, about inflation at all? Because it, it seems to me that they, they point to the current inflation rate and that we've had, you know, we've had easy monetary policy and we're running big uh, fiscal deficits and inflation has, re- inflation has remained very low. Are they saying something different, maybe building on this secular stagnation idea? Does that does that all come into play here? Well, so that they they say those things, right? right. So that's the, their first line of defense when you when you say, well, look, we can just... Uh, create as much money as we want um, uh, and use it for public spending programs. The first line of defense is that, right? And inflation is low. But that's not different from what other, but more mainstream monetary doves uh, say, right? That's not, it's not, at this point, it's not even different from what most former uh, monetary hawks say. The, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the theory as such adds any, anything new to that. Uh, where they have, I think, it, I think this is a reasonable interpretation from the writing of at least uh, a good subset of the MMT proponents, where they do have a different uh, view on on inflation and how to deal with it, is when that first line of defense is is removed. You say, "But sure, fine, but what if we do get inflation?" And then they say, "Okay, then we use tax policy, fiscal policy, right?" Which is different from the sort of more mainstream view where the monetary authority is in charge of so this of controlling. Inflation. So it's kind of a world turned upside down approach to macroeconomics, right? Where where you have the Federal Reserve in charge of financing these programs, whether it's Medicare for all or a job guarantee. So they so they, they will print the money to finance those programs and then it will be up to Congress. If we if if somehow inflation isn't forever and always low, it will be up to Congress then to drain the system of that money through tax increases. Yeah, that's right. So the House Ways and Means Committee. And well, that seems novel. Well, you know, it would, yeah. Is that novel? I, I, yeah, that's seems, novel. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's novel. I keep looking for what, you know, what's getting, I mean, people seem very excited by this, but is that what yeah. excites I th- them? I think that's the, I, I would say that that's the core of the, yeah. of yeah. the substantive novelty. Right. right. I, I, I mean, I think that is a very bad idea to, to put, to, ma- to make that swap and put elected officials in charge of price stability while put while putting the monetary authority in charge of financing uh, large public programs, uh, but I do think that that's really at the heart of uh, what their thinking gets at. The problem is that they're they're never particularly explicit about this part of the modern monetary theory. In part, of course, because this is not the popular part. Right? Popular part is the we have a way to get your program to spend a lot of money, and we don't have to go through right. the difficult the, process of raising. The taxes. unpopular part is when inflation uh, escalates, we're gonna we're gonna raise your taxes, and if Congress isn't fully functional, then we're gonna we're not gonna deal with inflation. Right? That yeah, that seems like a well, seems it, like a bad institution. That seems design. again to me that seems like a, uh, a component. So on the on the Fed part of it. Do they envision a very different kind? I mean, what do you really need a Federal Reserve for? Why do you just have the no, merge, it with the, they, merge it with the Treasury Department? I think that's what they have in mind. Yeah. So they, you know, the, the Federal Reserve would, I guess, do the equivalent of open market operations, but to, to, the, to, to Medicare providers. Uh, right. Yeah. The, 
or, or, or financing the checks going to the job guarantee people right. or whatever. So, so, so that, that is not a central bank as so we currently envision it. There's a weird it. line of logic that I don't understand at all, yeah. much less so than the than this, okay, we're going to use taxes to ensure price stability. Right. Sometimes some of the proponents of modern monetary theory say that actually the job guarantee program, the universal job guarantee program is what will keep the uh, uh, price dynamics from spinning out of control. It's very unclear how this works, but that, but the logic is, okay, well, you pay every, you give everyone a guaranteed probably $15 an hour job, and that $15 an hour, that somehow uh, fully determines the the price level. I don't understand how that works at all, but so that's the only alternative I've really seen them spell out, the only alternative to the previous uh, uh, two options we mentioned. One, we just don't believe that inflation is going to be an issue. Two, we'll use tax policy to 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 ensure price stability. The only alternative to those two options that I've heard is this: that somehow the job guarantees program will will ensure price stability. I, I don't really understand how that would work. You would think that if that works, then surely what we have now, which is you know Medicare fee right. for service payments, that would also ensure price stability. And yet, no one believes that. So they so where does the confidence come from that politicians in Congress will take this kind of what will be you know probably be unpopular action where does that that they will do that when when you when we've seen sort when we've seen central banks at the behest of populations politicians make very bad decisions which is why you try to have independent central banks where where does the confidence come from by sort of flipping that around that's going to work better well, I, so I, I, so I think this. I think this is why they're often hesitant to talk about this. This backstory is this like a, just like an anti-technocrat kind of populist thing? I, 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 I'm not even sure that's the case. I think that they just want the additional social spending, and the MMT provides, I guess, sort of intellectual cover for intellectual it? veneer for for doing that. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think this is why the proponents become a little evasive when you press them on. How to deal with inflation and how they sometimes contradict each other, contradict themselves. Uh, it's precisely because I don't think they're super confident that having the House Ways and Means Committee in charge of ensuring price stability is a good institutional design for. Oh, you could you could create some sort of independent body. Right? You could. So you could have a, an independent fiscal authority instead of an independent monetary authority. The the concern there, I think, has has typically been that uh, fiscal policy choices often include much more uh, sort of direct distributional choices than monetary. You're, we're uh, going to give, give a panel of unelected technocrats, and they're going to figure out who pays what tax rate yeah. and what, what tax credits maybe get reduced. That, that's, that yeah. seems like the job so of those, Congress. Those, yeah, so those choices, I think, are much more inherently political than the, than the monetary policy choices, whatever concerns you may have about right. those. But I think if you had to rank order them, you know, what are the more politically sensitive choices, I'd say, you know, the tax choices are more politically sensitive than setting the federal funds rate. Right. Um, and, but yeah, so that's what, it would, that's what it would come down to. I've never seen anyone, because so the thing is they don't want to go down this route this far. So I've never seen an explicit institutional mm-hmm. design featuring an independent fiscal authority. Right. Do they have a point? I've seen some more traditional left of center economists and they said, They'll say, well, listen, uh, one thing this does, it does kind of reframe the issue a little bit. And we've been too worried about debt. I mean, we've seen the debt GDP ratio double over the past decade uh, with no apparent impact on inflation or our ability to borrow. 
So to the extent that it sort of nudges policy in a direction that seems to worry a bit less about debt, it's a it's a good thing. Do the so do the MMTers have it more right than the people who were, you know, who were pushing for Simpson bowls and we need to dramatically reduce the deficits? Do they do they is their story given what we've seen the past ten years, is their story more right than that story? No, well, so I, I, I wouldn't say so. I don't think because I don't. Again, I don't think their story adds much to what. Uh, in in the, the the parts that are useful, I think don't add much to what uh, people have been saying. People have pointed to Japan and said, "Look, they run, uh, they they have a massive amount of debt, and they're doing just fine." Um, I you know I don't think the U.S. itself. We're running. We're at three point. 7% unemployment and we're running 5% of GDP fiscal deficits. I don't think that, you know, that, that that in that debate, I really don't think that the people who say deficits don't matter and we can just, you know, go ahead. I don't think they need more help. You know, I think they're doing fine just by themselves. But has it, do you think it's helped, as you sort of look at, you know, what sort of the left and the right have been saying about debts and deficits, has it, has the fact that Folks on the right who have sort of their own, they have their own theory, the way the world works, uh, supply side economics, which says, you know, debts and deficits don't matter. Uh, you know, we should cut taxes. Tax cuts will, in many, many cases, pay for themselves. And uh, again, in, and in more extreme versions, all tax cuts, you know, seem to pay for themselves. Has, do you think that has given, again, space for this idea to sort of percolate. Well, yeah. So I do think, in some way, it's the it's the it's the left wing equivalent of the we're always to the right of the peak of the Laffer curve thinking that that we, we that we've seen on the on the right over the over the in the U.S. for sure over the past uh, couple of decades. Of course, you know, for for example, last year when the DCJ passed basically all Acts, of the cuts and jobs act. That's right. The tax reform bill. Yeah. You know, basically every senior uh, Republican elected official said, no, it'll pay for itself, you know, so that, it, you know, the, say, say what you will about the, the we're always to the right of the left curve guys, they've definitely convinced a lot of elected officials, but I think that's bad, I don't think that's good, mm-hmm. uh, and so I'd be disappointed if, if, if the MMT guys succeed in doing the same thing on the, on the center left. Do you, I mean, do you think that current debt levels, uh, federal debt levels, are anywhere close to being a problem? Whether it's the debt or, or or the deficits, which are also supposed to to rise, are we are we? There's many you know, people always ask me like, what's the, what's the danger zone? Is it a you know is the debt as a share of GDP is at 100 percent? If that's the danger zone, what are we anywhere near that danger zone? Well, so I think one of the issues is that we don't really know where the danger zone is, right? And you know, so I'd say lower is better than than higher. We also have to remember that whatever the danger zone is, um, higher. Uh, Federal debt levels uh, crowd out private sector activity. You know whether whether or not you wh- whether or not you're worried about an immediately looming financial crisis. Uh, I think one, what we you know think of this past year. Right, the I think there's pretty broad agreement that without the uh, increased deficits from the from the tax bill fiscal stimulus and the spending bill fiscal stimulus, mm-hmm. I don't think we would have seen interest rates rise as much. And so we wouldn't have seen as that, much crowd out of, is, of, of private sector. Is cro- is, again, is that a theory that's in dispute at all, cr- that crowding out the impact of deficits and crowding out private activity? Is that, is that, a, is that do, and do MMTers challenge, it's, it's do, do they challenge to, that? So it's hard to think of how they think of interest rates because they're, 
their theoretical framework is balance sheets, right? So there are no there there are no dynamics. There are no multi. In the end, you know, the interest rate is the the relative price of consumption in one period and another, and that there are no multiple periods in their in their economic thinking. So I don't, I wouldn't be confident saying, one way or another, whether they are concerned about that. Just because I don't, I've never really seen them develop a theory of how this, of how you know investment works. You know, so this is a. In a sense, this is a big difference with sort of other modern macroeconomic theories, right? So there is their models are 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 basically accounting balance sheets, uh, whereas you know basically all modern mainstream macroeconomics starts from optimizing agents and firms who you know who plan ahead, who you know who who try to you know in, in, invest so as to reap benefits in future periods none of that is in their works so i just I, I don't really i don't find it easy to think of 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 interest rates in the context of their of their theories i think some proponents would say that if you look what the economy's done over the past decade that the performance and particularly what we've seen with inflation should cause mainstream economists to take pause and think hard about whether they have the story right. Have you done that? Do you think you have, there's anything, whether it's persistently low inflation, because uh, there's been a variety of theories have popped up to say, you know, that we had it wrong, and now, you know, we're, we're suffering from secular stagnation and persistent lack of demand. We need to do something different. Have you changed your thinking at all? Has anything happened in the past 10 years that how you think about well, that? Well, I was, I, so over the, I've, I haven't been particularly worried about inflation over the past 10 years. And I think that the people who were worried have indeed changed their mind. Right? And we've seen that even in practice. So the, uh, the European Central Bank basically made a 180 on its, on its monetary policy stance after they realized that, it, that there was no reason for them to be as concerned about inflation as they were right after the crisis hit at first. And so I do think we've seen people reconsider really how large the inflation threat uh, was at, at you know in in the early recovery from the right. from the great from the financial crisis. I don't think that has required you know a fundamental reshaping of their theoretical frameworks. I think they've just learned more about the way the economy worked, and and I, I think that's been that's been helpful. I, I don't think that the the MMT framework would have helped them much in 2009 because there's there's nothing even approaching empirical implementability. Like there's there's nothing in MMT that gives you any sense of how large. Okay, so it's, right. So it's two, it's two it's 2008, and and uh, we're all MMTers then. What 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 does government do in reaction to an economy that seems to be collapsing? I don't know. I would imagine it implements a universal jobs program. And so then we get to 2012. The federal government now employs an additional, I don't know, 20 million people. <laughs> and those people are going to be employed by the federal government. I, it's hard, I don't know, it's hard to think of that kind of factual, especially if you implement it right when lots of people are losing their jobs. Presumably those will get hired by the federal government. Uh, it's not clear what they will do Right. They'll be employed at $15 an hour. It'll take a long time for the for the private sector to want to re- I don't know. It's tough. It's again, there there isn't much in terms of quantification in the right, right. in the theoretical frameworks. So I don't really know how to how to think about that, but I think that would be the 
that would be the first order impact that the federal government would employ a lot more people than, right. than, it, than it did otherwise. And uh, and it's also a question I get asked a lot. I'm not sure I give a very good answer, but why is inflation still so low? It seems unemployment's very low. Uh, there's all this stimulus in the system, and yet inflation uh, seems quiescent. Um, well, I think it's about where it is because that's what the Federal Reserve's inflation target is. And so when it when inflation threatens to rise above 2%, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, as it's been doing right. consistently for, for a couple of years now. And so I think in a sense, so the Fed is not pow- has not been proven powerless. In fact, it's been proven effective because yeah. it's kept inflation down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's taken really drastic. It took really drastic measures during the Great Recession. I don't really understand why you know, the, <laughs> the MT people aren't giving them credit for it. You know, like they took extraordinary measures that I don't think anyone could have predicted in 2005. And so, you know, like in a sense, they they did what they were supposed to do. But again, so the reason why inflation now is low is because the Fed has an inflation target and they're trying to stick to it. Right. I mean, does part of this stem from, you know, this is this at least appears to be like a, a novel way of looking at the world. And that a number of things have happened. There have been a number of theories proposed over the past decade to sort of explain, you know, what we've seen in the job market and the kind of a, a, a recovery that's been weaker than what some people might have expected. You've heard this secular stagnation theory from Larry Summers. They'll point to uh, corporations not investing because they're all short-term oriented, that the, that the labor market has changed and that we now have some sort of gig economy. There's been a number that there's too much monopoly. A lot of theories to explain what many people view as a sort of malfunctioning economy. Is the right answer or simple answer still that we had a banking crisis, housing crisis, financial crisis all rolled up in one 10 years ago, and boy, yeah, it's, 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 it's taken a while to heal. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And so, you know, a, a, a bunch of the theories, so the, it's a few of the things you mentioned are a little more recent vintage, but a, a bunch of the stuff that people were very worried about earlier on during the, the, sort of during the depth of the Great Recession, I think have bit by bit been proven, you know, not that concerning. You know, you don't hear people talk about the work disincentives and the Affordable Care Act as much anymore. Right. Uh, even though I think Casey Mulligan used to argue that that was basically what explained all the job losses during the Great Recession. Uh, I, you know, that uncertainty about Obama economic policies more generally the, was a depressant. That was a yeah. I, you know, I think. The policy uncertainty is still not very helpful. I think that has. I think we we now see on the trade side that that's still an issue. Right, different kind of uncertainty. But it's certainly not the only thing that explained the depth of the, of the Great Recession. Yeah. So I think you know there's a recovery. It takes a while. These the recoveries from financial crises have always been have always been slow. Um, uh, or just as we wrap up here, MMTers again they, not happy uh, with the Fed. Should the Fed? Do we need a new? Do we need a new some maybe this isn't the new the modern monetary theory we need but that we're getting is there a is there a modern monetary theory a new theory of monetary policy that we that we need uh, or do, no, they, so do the I bankers would, already have it the central bankers have it right what I would like is a more explicitly developed uh, version of modern monetary theory right if that's what we're gonna uh, engage with then I would like for them to answer questions about you know the institutional design they have in mind. I would like to see them uh, try and quantify some of the mechanisms in their in their work. You know that kind of stuff. That seems like a good way for them to to 
to spend some of their intellectual energy. Right. I'm going to end our chat the same way you sort of you sort of end the paper, which is a concern that this could lead to hyperinflation, which doesn't necessarily mean wheelbarrows full of money, but it does mean much higher inflation than we've seen in this country in a long time. You think that's a genuine risk? And what do you what do you mean by hyperinflation? Well, so what I what I mean is that if you right if you go ahead with uh, an if you if you take them at their at their word in the in sort of the most aggressive sense, then what you would see is a debt, massive debt finance expansion of the welfare state with Medicare for All, uh, with the jobs guarantee, um, and concerns about inflation being deferred entirely to elected officials who would have to write, who would have to raise taxes to to keep it under control. I think in a scenario like that, we do we we do run a risk of going back to sort of seventies. Uh, pre-Volcker style uh, macroeconomics. And I think that would be bad. My guest today has been Stan Voiger. Dr. Voiger, thank you for your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on, Jim. <laughs>